So as you guys know, this past 18 months have been really difficult. Last night we had a uh, kind of an appreciation dinner for a, a lot of the people who've been involved in making this church happen this past year. Um, and I started this church in hopes of dialogue, right, in hopes of having conversation over a meal. And that's one of the things that's been so challenging over the past 18 months. And the loss of being able to do that is an acute pain, but really just scratches the surface of all the different um, suffering that has happened in the past uh, in the past year or so. Um, and so I, that's why I wanted to really kind of talk about why we're going through the book of Job. We are, I don't even say coming out of a pandemic, but we are in the midst of a pandemic for the last 18 months. And so that kind of suffering, I think, is worth confronting and discussing. Um, and the reason I wanted to kind of take this deep dive is oftentimes when um, pastors in particular, when we address suffering, it's often just kind of a cursory examination. We do it for a Sunday, and then we move on to something else. And so my hope in doing this is that we would take um, a closer look and exploration of what um, it looks like. And I think I was talking to Vanessa last night, um, as she's been through this book before. Um, this book really teaches us how to suffer well. What does it look like to suffer well? Um, and suffering, I think, is something we really um, not only do not talk much about, is for a lot of us um, are kind of delivered from because if you look at the pace of technology a lot of the changes we've experienced um, and especially in this area in our country all over the world um, allows us to be insulated from a lot of different suffering um, because we think we have a sense of control and yet there is kind of an irony i was thinking about with um, with suffering and our technology is that now we get to be acutely aware of anything that happens in the world faster than ever. We get to know what's going on in our country instantly. We get to know what's happening in our area instantly. So not only um, is there the sense of control, but I, I also wonder if our sense of powerlessness is greater than ever before as well, because we're surrounded by um, messages about something that's going wrong someplace in this planet. Um, and that's something that in previous eras, just even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people didn't have to be exposed to. And so what I would ask as we continue in this book is we begin to meditate on, hey, um, how many influences just kind of impact me um, and that especially impact the way that I think about this world and the way I think about myself? Because part of the message that Job is trying to communicate to us is how to think about all the different problems that happen um, to us um, and to the communities around us. And into this, this is what the book of Job is speaking. And it's the oldest book of the Bible uh, in terms of date written. And one thing I want to prepare you as far as expectations, there aren't easy answers in this text. This text doesn't give us any, it's not a how-to book in any way. It's not a textbook in any kind of way, but rather the poetry of this text, and we haven't even started the poetry, we won't actually start the poetry just yet, um, is really driving us towards some better questions and to relate to us some ways to confront um, evil and to confront um, how the mystery and beauty of how God operates in this world. And so today, I'm going to be talking about how God repurposes suffering, how God repurposes suffering. Um, and the way to think about um, repurposing something is you start out with an original purpose and then it changes. So for instance, repurposing is popular, um, I think, in, in remodeling and in woodworking, where, exam for example, you can take wood from a fence and then turn it into a bench. 
um, and that there's a whole bunch of ways to repurpose um, when you remodel or do construction. Um, but another example, maybe more common or everyday, is uh, uh, the treadmill. <laughs> Some people have a treadmill at home, um, and then it becomes like an expensive laundry hanger, right? That's another way um, to repurpose. They're repurposing hangers to open lock bathroom doors, or obsolete laptops becoming paperweights, um, books becoming monitor stands, in our house, uh, worn t-shirts become rags, right? So repurposing can be um, from worse to better or from better to worse. Um, but that is something that is intuitive to us and also an important feature of how God works. And so as we talk about suffering, I want to talk about some things in which suffering starts out as, right? Suffering as punishment for evil, suffering as a form of shame and loneliness, and then suffering as defeat. And so my points are all based on what it's going to become. God repurposes suffering as a response to the accuser that God repurposes suffering um, as a way to invite fellowship. And then finally, God repurposes suffering as a way to showcase his majesty. Okay, so we're going to start by reading from the book of Job. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Job chapter 1. And I actually didn't finish reading it uh, from last week. I only read kind of the first part of it because I was taking, we were taking in the scene of where um, God is talking to Satan, the accuser. And we didn't actually get to what happens to Job. And so I'm going to start by reading verse 13 of Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell among, upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And so a couple things that I wanted to point out um, is the poetic nature, even of this text, which is not into the poetry yet, and yet you have repetition, right? You have a repetition of these terrible events all happening more or less at the same time, or actually almost exactly in sequence. Um, and then you have this phrase, I alone have escaped to tell you. Somehow, in every instance, someone escaped to be able to tell what happened. And of course, you, you understand from the um, reader's perspective, because we know the reason behind it. And we also know that's likely uh, he's communicating it because Satan has designed it so that um, Job is informed every time, right? Job is, knows exactly what's happening as it happens. Um, and so a couple, couple things I would also comment on in this passage 
is that the kind of suffering that Satan is allowed to bring is um, from foreign peoples. It's the Sabians and the Chaldeans. Um, and then the other one is natural disaster. So there seems to be two ways that Satan can operate in the world, and that is from with God's permission. Um, those two ways are through natural disaster and that foreign oppression. And yet what's intentionally absurd about this is it's all happening at the same time. There's something fantastical about that. Um, but, you know, it is interesting that it's often that truth is stranger than fiction. And it's intentionally absurd to help us understand that there's a purpose, that there's a reason behind this that maybe Job doesn't understand. Um, but that there's that's that aspect of it. The other thing that I would notice, and I didn't get to comment on from this past Sunday, was that the accuser, Satan, and let me, um, actually, let me continue reading in chapter 2, and I want to, because I want to make some comments about Satan. This is chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, I guess... It almost sounds like he's also invited, right? Where he wasn't invited before. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there was none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So now we have another repetition. You have repetition throughout the book of Job. And here's another repetition in the backstory of Job that uh, uh, Satan comes back into this presentation ceremony, right? And so God again is showing off the sons. God again is showing off his sons, presenting them before him. And then Satan comes along again. God asks Satan the same question. Satan gives the same answer. Lord, uh, the Lord also responds again to the same one. Um, except this time he adds an additional one because Satan has already done some work against Job. And that's where he says, he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And so a first comment I want to make about Satan that I didn't get to discuss is that Satan, his name means adversary. It means accuser. And that means that Satan can only oppose. Okay. Satan doesn't have original thoughts. Satan doesn't create. He only takes what's created and corrupts it. And I want to I be very specific about some of the ways he corrupts. Um, because um, oftentimes we um, Christians talk about using the Bible. Okay? Um, that the Bible is a really important document, and undoubtedly it is so. Uh, but one of the features that Satan's able to do is Satan can even pervert the words of Scripture. And that is um, evidenced in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan tempts Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, the, it's, the second temptation says, Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and this is quoting from the Psalms, Psalm 91, For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. 
and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Okay, Satan is quoting scripture. Okay, and so one of the ways we need to be mindful of Satan's schemes is that he can even use God's words um, by taking them out of context. And actually, that shouldn't be a surprise to us because that's also what Satan does in Genesis uh, 3, okay, when Satan is tempting Adam and Eve. And so we need to be mindful of Satan's schemes that he can pervert even God's words by taking them out of context. And that is one of the things as a pastor um, that drives me crazy, but it's also something I'm guilty of as well. I think we're all guilty of taking people's words out of context. Um, but what I would note here is that even Psalm 91, if you look back at it, um, it's about making the Lord your dwelling place, not making God a slave to your whims and desires. And that's how Jesus responds to Satan, is that you do not put the Lord God to your test. You don't make God do what you want. It's actually the opposite. And so that's from that's Psalm, 9, that's Psalm 91. And so in, in saying this, what I'd also like to note is in verse, let's see, in verse three of chapter two, and we we talked about this in life group this past week. I think uh, one of our one of our uh, life group attendees mentioned this. Um, he still holds fast. This is verse three. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And that's that's just kind of a crazy sentence, because there's a couple things happening. Number one. Um, God is saying he destroyed, God is saying he was incited. So God is able, is allows uh, himself to be incited. Um, and then also notice it says destroy him without reason. And I think the, the idea here, the premise, the meaning of this statement is God is saying, look, I had no reason. I have no beef with Job. I have nothing against him. And yet you're the one that provoked me to do something against him. Okay. And so what does that say? It's possible to experience suffering. And I know I'm, I'm repeating this, but I, I, it's, it's worth repeating. Um, it is possible to experience suffering as a consequence of unrighteousness. Okay, I'm sorry. It's possible to experience suffering not as a, not as a consequence of unrighteousness. Meaning it's possible to experience suffering as a consequence of being righteous. <laughs> okay, um, And that's one of the things God can repurpose he can repurpose it as a response to a challenge. Okay. Um, it doesn't mean it invalidates the fact that we have to pay the penalty of our own actions, but God can choose suffering for, spe for specific people as a consequence of the accuser's challenge. Okay. And one example that I would give, and I'm going to come back to because the understanding during the ancient Near East. And I think for a lot of us is that when you experience good things, when God provides, um, it's because you're doing something right. It's because you've done something good. And if you experience evil or disease, it's because someone has done something evil. And I think I've mentioned this before, but in John chapter 9, it's illustrated as Jesus is walking and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because it's sin, it's the consequence of sin that creates these evil consequ these consequences and uh, results. And that's what we're going to be going through. That's what we're going to be seeing in the basis of this book. And so when you get into um, Job, especially the second chapter, Satan is doubling down. And clearly his, he has misjudged the character of mankind because he took away, Job lost all of his children, okay, 
Um, he lost all of his riches instantly, pretty much instantly. Um, and yet Job has not cursed God in response. So Job has experienced this exquisite kind of suffering. And yet Job still ha has not cursed God. And so let me continue um, reading in Job chapter 2. This is verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So this is the second round of suffering that Job has experienced. And it's almost like, and it's kind of interesting the way it's set up because it starts out with losing his children, right? And then it goes to losing his physical ailments. And I wonder if that's something that uh, is particular to men <laughs> because I, I, my sense is as a man, when I experience something painful to my body, that is like the worst thing ever. It's worse than even like um, pain to my kids, right? But I know for, for Judy, <laughs> it's like a completely different thing. If something happens to our children, that is like the worst possible pain. Um, and physical pain for her is like nothing. <laughs> like she went through childbirth, right? <laughs> like four times. So physical pain is nothing. No, I wouldn't say nothing, right? But it's secondary. And I wonder if, if God knows something about the nature of man or uh, males in particular, or is like, you know, I'm going to save the worst, or, or Satan knows, I'm going to save the worst for the last, right? Because he thinks that taking away the children will affect him, um, but it doesn't. And then he takes away his health um, with these sores, and that actually still does not affect Job. Um, it still doesn't alter his faith. So as you keep reading, um, did I read verse 9? I don't think I read verse 9. Did I read verse 9? I can't remember. Okay, thanks. Um, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay, so he continues to hold fast to his integrity. And then something really interesting happens. Um, his wife is attacking him. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a little more about that. Um, but one more thing that I'd like to, uh, that, that I'd like to make this point about suffering as a response to the accuser is that the celestial drama that's happening, it doesn't revolve around us as people, okay? Because everything in our culture catechizes us, uh, re repeats to us that we are the center of the universe. That's why the question of suffering is so painful for us to answer is because everything in our culture is telling us that you are the center of the universe. And I've been to um, a lot of graduations, maybe not a lot, but a pretty good number of graduations. And every time I go to a commencement and I hear the speech, I just, I throw up in my mouth a little bit. Um, because there's always a talk about how you can accomplish anything. You can change the world. You know, just be who you are. Be true to yourself. Don't let anyone bring you down. Live your best life. And I just, I just feel really uncomfortable with that because I can't change the world. I can barely um, get out of bed on time, okay? Um, I can't control my own impulses. You can't control your own impulses. You can't even keep your room clean. Um, my friend, Bill, he was a missionary to Lebanon. I mentioned him before, and he, has no, he, was a mission, he was a missionary for 20 years. And the second he stepped outside his door in Beirut, there were things that he was surrounded by that he had absolutely no control or influence over. 
And so when we talk about changing the world and making a difference and making an impact and all these things, you know, I can't even make my dog pee in the right place, <laughs> okay? Much less impact the world. And so I would suggest that as we think about what it means to, for suffering, that maybe this whole um, drama about suffering, maybe it doesn't have to do with you. <laughs> maybe you're not that important. Okay. Now it does have something to do with Job, but I think to recognize there are forces at play way beyond us when it comes to suffering. Okay. Way beyond us. So the second thing, second point, that God repurposes suffering as an invitation for fellowship. Okay. And the first thing I'd note is that when you experience suffering, it's actually the opposite from an invitation. Because the thing that happens with um, Job's wife as it says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> That's a pretty insensitive statement, right? That's a really insensitive statement. And yet it actually does ring true in a way. Because um, I, I'm going to guess that when you experience pain and suffering, the most profound pain that you experience isn't from people you don't know. It's from the people that are closest to you. Their response to your suffering, I mean, sometimes they're the reason for your suffering, but their response to your suffering is often the thing that is most painful because you have an expectation and a hope that they would empathize and they would understand what you're experiencing. And that's also why when we experience hurt within the church, suffering within the church, it's also exquisitely painful because we have an expectation and because there's a history of goodness and compassion and warmth and forgiveness. And when we don't experience it, it's so painful. And then there's just the nature of suffering itself that it always tends to invite, it always invites shame and loneliness. So if you think of suffering as a pity party, uh, shame and loneliness are like always on the guest list. Like they're always there. Because the nature of suffering is that we only, we, we feel like we, only the people that have experienced exactly what we've experienced understand suffering. And so for instance, single people who want to get married don't appreciate married friends telling them that God will bring them the right person at the right moment. Couples struggling with infertility don't appreciate couples with children telling them that everything's going to be okay. And past, pastors always commiserate with one another that no one in our church understands us, right? Um, and then as a left-handed person, I love meeting other left-handed people because only left-handed people understand the, the unique suffering of sloppy writing and smearing ink all over the page and having to use scissors with your right hand. <laughs> Everyone has their own unique suffering and pain that we feel like no one else can understand. And even when we meet someone who's been through the same thing, we still elevate or feel isolated because we, we believe no one else can understand it. And this is compounded in Job's case by the response of his wife. And though it's not often the case, it indicates that shame and loneliness always are always companions. And yet let's continue reading in the book of Job to see what happens. And these three friends are going to be important um, themes in the rest of the book. This is verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. The Na the 
they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they get a lot of flack because a lot of things they say um, in the rest of this book are not spiritual, or at least we understand them as not very spiritual. And yet, I give them major props here, okay? They are amazing friends in this instance. Um, it says they, they made an appointment together. They made a plan to support their friend, to show him sympathy and comfort. When they see him as a distance, they didn't recognize him. So they raise their voices and they weep. They weep alongside them, alongside him. And then they sit on the ground for seven days and seven nights and they don't say a word. And I'm not sure, I'm not even sure if that's possible. I mean, it's definitely not possible for me. Um, I'm not sure how that's possible, but that's what they do. That's how they support him as a friend. And certainly there's a long conversation, a dialogue um, that happens afterwards. And, that this, and yet this moment is important to, re to remember and recognize that is significant. Because suffering is inv an invitation to fellowship. And I'm not sure why this is the case. But there is something incredibly bonding about suffering together or having some, inviting someone in to join you in suffering. And a lot of times it's being able to experience it together. I know when I was uh, leading, a, leading youth ministry, I would take the youth leaders on a death hike. Um, and uh, we would, uh, we call it a death hike, but it was just, it's basically just an excruciating hike. Um, and I, and I think I did that with even earlier this year with some of the guys, some of the men in our church. Um, and some, I know some uh, kind of complained, um, but it was really bonding because you, there's something about when you suffer together that all your pretenses, all the facades are stripped away. Okay, because we work really hard to show people our best self. But there's something about suffering, well, not something. I mean, <laughs> the way suffering works is that it strips away your best self the facade, and all the things that you want to show to other people. And it says that they didn't recognize Job. They hadn't seen him in this much pain before. And there was a sense that all everything about him was stripped away. And that is a unique invitation to draw close to others. There's a unique invitation. You don't have to. It doesn't have to. But there's something about suffering that reveals what we're really about. And there's an invitation there for us to have intimacy and to bond with another person. It's really no coincidence that uh, World War II veterans, after coming together for reunions, okay, um, discover a fellowship and a sweetness to their camaraderie and a, and a deeper form of intimacy than they even have with their own spouses. And I wonder if that's kind of the way God has designed suffering in order to, for us to strip away and be able to perceive, perceive what's true. My last point. God repurposes suffering to showcase his majesty. One original purpose or byproduct of suffering is that it makes God look bad. I know quite a number of people who have wrestled with the question of why God allows suffering. And because they did not receive an adequate answer, they have checked out on their faith. They said, no, I don't want any part of you. I don't want any part of God. And in John 
chapter 9, verse 3, in response to the question of the disciples, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born blind, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it's actually the opposite kind of idea, that suffering doesn't make God look bad. <laughs> it actually makes God look good. He, he allows suffering in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And in the case of Job, as I talked about last week, God allows Job to suffer so that Job can be seen as the champion, as God's champion, because it says something about God himself. And I'd like to say a little bit about Job's suffering um, and about relating to it. Okay, I know, I don't think any of us, actually I'm sure none of us can relate to Job in the sense that we've experienced what Job has experienced. And I think that's intentional. But what is meant to be universal about Job is that suffering is universal. All of us have suffered in some way. And the point of the story isn't to compare ourselves to him, but to recognize he's speaking about something universal. Because you learn about what's universal from the outliers, from the extremes. And so, for instance, um, this past, I think this past week, or no, the week before, in our life group, I shared a story about um, having some doubts in my faith, particularly during seminary, and reevaluating uh, my understanding of scripture um, during seminary. I don't consider that a significant, well, from in comparison to what Job experienced, and I, I know many of you have experienced, that's not like a significant suffering. And you know, I shared that because I think there's something universal about having doubts about God and questioning your faith and experiencing uncertainty. And so as you read this story and hear about this, these stories of suffering, would you realize like it's not about the extent of the suffering that matters. It's the un universal aspect of it that everyone goes through it. So, God can repurpose suffering. He can take the brokenness of this world and show people that is through, um, through the suffering, that through suffering, he can give it a, a greater purpose. And that's illustrated by what Jesus did on our behalf. Because Jesus suffered by going to the cross. He was humiliated and isolated from the people that were closest to him. He experienced great physical suffering. And yet God repurposed the suffering of Jesus even into death so that death itself would become life on our behalf, and that forgiveness and meaning and hope would be given for us. And so there is actually something ironic. I did say the celestial drama doesn't involve you, but it actually does, because if Jesus is our champion, and he has empowered us through his spirit to become like him, that means you and I are also targets of Satan, that we are like Job, and, and God is counting on us to come through and show and showcase his glory. So you are Satan's targets, and the celestial drama actually involves each of you, where Satan is coming after you and wants you to experience suffering so that you can deny God. And so even if you believe today, and that may be true, even if you believe today, there may be a truth in it, that the consequences of actions on your part are why you suffer. There's an aspect to suffering that we don't fully understand, that Job doesn't, didn't even get to know Satan's involvement. So recognize there are aspects to what, to what you are suffering today, that the pain that you're experiencing, the strife, the humiliation, 
that has to do with the accuser. And, Satan, and God wants to showcase his glory in you by having you trust him and be able to suffer well. Because repurposing suffering is a choice. Allowing the pain you've experienced to draw you closer to God and closer to others is a choice. And Job may not be fully aware of the background, but he is making this choice. And as we walk through this book, we're going to see how he journeys towards repurposing it, how he journeys in suffering well. So I don't know the death and pain of what you're experiencing in your life today. I don't know if the nature of it is the loss um, of a loved one or the absence of a significant other. I don't know if you're struggling with an ex existential crisis or being jobless or a job you hate or wrestling with burnout or direction. I don't know if you're struggling with a physical ailment, with anxiety or depression. I just know that if you're a human being, you've got some pain and some of it is due to your choices and some of it is due to a celestial drama being played out between God and the accuser. And that is a privilege because God wants to repurpose that suffering today for his glory. He wants to use it as an invitation for fellowship and for intimacy. And he wants to involve you in this celestial drama, even though you're not at the center of it. He wants to showcase his power and majesty. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this new uh, location that we get to hear uh, your word and be able to sing. Lord, at the same time, I'm also um, kind of uh, humbled by how ephemeral life is and the suffering that's part of it. So Lord, would you repurpose, would you give us a vision for how you repurpose suffering, how you take it from something that leads to death and alienation and loss and disappointment um, as, an, as a consequence of unrighteousness and help us to see and live out ways in which it could glorify you. In which we can meet the accuser's challenge. In which we can be invited into uh, fellowship and intimacy with others as we suffer. Thank you that Jesus, not only are you an example, but you have empowered us and turned us from death to life so that suffering could be repurposed. We pray this in your name. Amen.